0: Yeah. yeah.
1: With a track called Girlfriend in a Coma from the album Strange Ways Here We Come. I'm David Eastall. This is the C86 show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life. As I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should. Always playing the finest in indie pop from the golden decade, which was the 80s and also beyond. But anyway, this week's special guest, I know you've just been desperate to know who it's going to be. Yes, it's Sol Davis from James. So I'll be bringing that interview alongside the usual award-worthy playlist, but we've got a lot to pack in and only 60 minutes to do it. So I think we should start with your favourite and my favourite. Yes, are you ready? Take it away. i Titled are you ready from the 1988 album strip mind hello this is david eastlaw this is the c86 show and this week's special guest is Sol davies from james so i've got that interview in about five little sections throughout the show to play but uh, because i've got a lot to pack in and not that much time i think we should play the next track this is going to be from the album seven which was one of my favorites this is i think the opening track born of frustration and then we'll have the first part of the interview so take it away
0: This frustration. Who gave the leopard spots? Of-
1: sounds that is born of frustration that came from their 1992 album 7 produced by the one and only youth who was the uh, bass player for or with uh, killing joke but probably no more anyway this is david Saw the c86 show um, oh, a bit later I'll probably tell you you can contact us if you so want it's always nice but uh, this is going to be the first part of my interview with Sol Davies from James who um, I caught up with recently just to say that um, three or four members of the band had sort of rented a cottage in the wilderness to write their next album even though they've got a new album coming out this month, August which is titled Living in Extraordinary Times so there you go so expect more new material by the band they are so prolific at the moment, but in the background, you will hear something bleating. It could be a sheep. I'm thinking it's a sheep, but it could be a goat. So, um, don't worry, that's part of the um, ambience and recording of this very exciting interview. And this is the first part where we talk about the early years and the importance of the Smiths, because let's face it, the Smiths were the most important band of the 80s by a long shot. Anyway, Sol, take it away.
2: The Smiths were very kind to James, as you'll be aware, they invited. Um, James to be their support band on the Meet His Murder tour, which I guess that year was '86. was that yes, was the kind right. of the biggest tour, really, probably of that year in the UK uh, and Ireland as well. And um, I guess that cemented a kind of a bond, to some extent, yes. publicly at least, a bond that appeared between the Smiths and James. And obviously at that point, Morrissey very famously said when he was asked, Mm -hmm. we had this a lot to deal with in America. When we started going to America, people would always ask us, what's it like to be Morrissey's favourite band? And that came from a quote, which was, he was asked at some point in that period, who's your favourite band? And he said, oh, James. So, but I guess um, there was uh, something scratchy and essentially... Uh, disorganised and diffident about the music that was being made at that point by James, not by the Smiths, obviously, they were a juggernaut, but um, by James at that point, uh, you know, the early work on Factory and the album Stutter. Yes. But I like to think that, um, and I think it's true, I don't just like to think this, I like to recognise that pretty much the band, that that band that was James then with Larry and Paul and Gavin uh, and the band that we currently are, that there are great similarities. I think to some extent, sonically, you don't hear this, sonically, Stutter and our uh, Latest Record are completely different, obviously. They would be, they're 35 years apart. But there's an attitude I'm, I recognise as being very very similar and and, and actually uh, i'm beginning to think that we haven't really changed that much we we perhaps changed some way shape or form through the 90s because success massive success will do that to people it does it to everybody any walk of life doesn't it and um, it, it happens to footballers it happens to people day to day it happens to musicians whatever things change the clothing changes I suppose our attitude changed, changed a little bit as well. Yes. Uh, we went mad. We went a bit mad. We became arrogant. We, we, we started to believe our own press, probably. We became arrogant, and and uh, we probably started to become irrelevant to some extent. Not not to our fans. Our fans have stuck by us all the time. Uh, but uh, I think we've come full circle to some extent, and I think we sit outside a little bit, but we're armed with this huge fan base,
1: Yes, this is quite a fortunate place to be, isn't it?
2: Well, we've worked at it.
1: Yes.
2: We recognise, you know, we've made some really, really, really fucking good music, new music, um, that has stood scrutiny from critics and our fans alike and the industry. I would say our last three records, including this one, got so uh, Lepity More Girl at the End of the World and now Extraordinary mm-hmm. Times. They are records that have been scrutinised by various people going, well, uh, do they mean anything this lot? And generally, the report back from the front has been, yeah, it's all right. And we've learnt how to play our music. And I would say, yeah, we've kind of come full circle. So we're like... A new band, in a way, and and of course, old bands always say they feel like new bands because they don't, because it's not true, and so they lie. But genuinely, in this case, I'm not lying. I'm saying something quite fundamental, and I think I don't. I don't. I wonder whether or not we've ever had. We've had some songs that have been culturally significant because they were massive. Yeah. Um. But I wonder whether, when you near your 40th year in the music industry, making records, and we're in our 37th year. And this is our 15th album. I think perhaps you can start to claim to have some significance to albeit a few, a small number of people, you know, Mm. like people don't know us like they know Adele, but we have, or Coldplay or whatever, but we have, but we're beginning to see in ourselves that we have, there is some significance to the work that we do because we are still doing it, you know, and that's the. That's the, that's the point
1: Indeed, that's the first part of my interview with Sol Davies from James and like I said, they've got a new album out that's uh, August, so uh, Living in Extraordinary Times, there's been several singles and it's all sounding very good Anyway, this is, um, like I said David the C86 show, if you want to contact me you can via Facebook or Twitter, go to at C86 show and I will be there but um, I think time for another song This is from another early album This is Him from a Village from a village and that was from an EP that came out in 85, Village Fire which was on Factory Records. And in fact, Sol Davies wasn't even on the, in the band at that time. Anyway, we do like our early work from James. This um, is going to be the second part of the interview with Sol, who uh, we were talking about the longevity of a band, especially when they sort of managed to survive that five-year narrative that I managed to, um, or my theory that most bands have five years and then it all kind of goes wrong. So, um, yes, this was his response. And he found it slightly amusing because normally bands, you know, get stuck on their second album, and if they ever tour America, they come back and uh, are not quite the same again. And normally they split up after that. Anyway, Soul, take it away.
2: Beyond fickle. Um, it's, it's um, it, yeah, it's, it, <laughs> well, it, I was I was kind of laughing um, as you went through your, um, as you went through your, um, Just go in, it's fine. Yeah, yes. uh, sorry, we're just... We're just the owner of the house where we are has just showed up to give us some uh, things that we need for the house. Uh, we're actually, uh, weirdly enough, uh, Tim, Jim, myself and Mark, our keyboard player, are holed up in the Dales. Uh, we're in uh, Swaledale uh, writing our next album. <laughs> um, so when you talk about longevity and creativity, uh, uh, perhaps uh, we, we are actually... Um, uh, we actually shh, you boys, I'm doing an interview. So a very interesting man who has an interesting theory as to why we're still still going. Perhaps no, we we are uh, we are uh, so we're actually writing uh, now. So in between shows, we're we're starting the writing process for the next album, and um yes. you know, I mean, it's an endless. So aside from that interjection, there, I mean, I think that process that you've just described is a process that we have seen happen to people around us. And I honestly don't quite know why it is that we didn't fall foul of that. I don't actually fully understand how it's possible that we are just about to release our 15th album. We're writing our 16th album and we're going to sell out a bunch of arenas. You know, I don't quite know how that's happened. And I don't know if we ever will. And I, w- I wonder whether we even ever question it or think about it. I One thing... Without being fey or maudlin about it, we are—we have gone from being a bit of a an arsehole juggernaut at the high points of our public, the public high point, selling millions of records, all that stuff in the nineties. We lost the plot, I think, and we made some great music and we did some amazing shows, but we kind of lost the plot, I think. We lost a sense of ourselves a little bit having a break from each other and then coming back to make music only, not to do anything else other than make music. We didn't come back to make money. We came back to, we were all, you know, we, we came back to make music in 2007. We've made some indifferent things. We had to find our feet again. And I wouldn't claim that everything that we do is brilliant. It can't be. That's just not going to happen. And you can't have 15 albums, plus mini albums and live albums and all the rest of it. Yada, yada. You can't. You can't have... Not all of it can work. But I think it would be odd if, to even imagine that it would all work. So remarkable that we are in the position that we're in. One, I was just going to say on that score, one thing I really look forward to doing in the end of this year is playing these shows with the Charlatans and they come and open up for us in, in December. Because, see, I have a high regard for them because they have a catalogue, they have a history, they have a longevity, very nice people as well. Uh, and, uh, but they keep making music and i think that's that's just got to be the test really like c- can you do something new can you can you create a new tune can you say something new you know
1: yes this is oh, true, but, actually but it's interesting and, because cuz in the early 80s you know, echo and the bunny men were so like they were that sort of band that sort of represented the you know alternative indie you know, college rock. And then when the Smiths came along, you know, they almost became irrelevant. And then, you know, obviously the Smiths had the baton for about five years and then, you know, they fell apart yeah. and then somebody else takes it over, which is quite interesting. But it was interesting because having done all these interviews and sort of meet, you know, all these bands who've done these kind of classic sort of records and then sort of disappear for several decades, the one band that I sort of grew to or have grown to sort of appreciate probably more and more even though I'm a bit indifferent to them, is you too, colla Because they are obviously another juggernaut who who went through all their stages, and you also did your Brian Eno collaboration, didn't you as well? Which they did as well. Which which obviously is kind of a mark. You know, I remember that half man half biscuit song, didn't they? Another Eno collaboration, which is kind of um, you know it can go either way, can't it? An Eno collaboration, you could end up with David Bowie's Heroes, or you could end up with one of those oh dear i wish they'd just get back to writing proper songs again
2: my view on that is that uh laid and wa wa were the two first records that we came out with with brian and i think they're james classics so for very very different reasons and the fragility and the brooding kind of power of some of the songs that is in are on laid um were remarkable really and um I still listen to songs from that record. Uh, There was a track called One of the Three, which I absolutely love. The space in it, you know, like technically making record, making those records with Brian was really interesting because we got to work in amazing spaces. We got to work at Real World, for example, Peter Gabriel's studio. And we were like wide eyed kids, like in this fucking place, just going, wow. We're a real world. Why the fuck are we here with Brian Eno? Yes. So, you know, and, and there was, that was a bit shock, shocking, really, to think that we could do that, you know, that value was being given to our work in that on that level. That came with very high expectations, uh, some of which we met. We couldn't meet all of them, but we, we met some of them. And that is, I think, laid as a remarkable record. Uh because it's a mixture of jamming and improvising and capturing moments, you know. So it's not a structured record in that sense. You know, it's not a perfect record by any means. And it's quite wayward sonically in some places. Like Laid, the track Laid itself is fucking bonkers. You know, it's all over the shop. I mean, you, you wouldn't be allowed to rec- release a record like that now because it's so out of time, all the guitars are out of tune. And yet it has this joy and abandon to it, which is, you know, is, is one of alternative Britain's alternative pop map has that somewhere on the board that yeah. track you know uh love it or hate it doesn't really matter um it, it 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 was a moment you know uh uh I agree with Brian you know uh uh well he saw something in us that we had been doing that we're still doing and we're doing in this house in swaledale later today which is we're getting together and making a noise and then out of the noise we find the song so we don't sit around a piano or a guitar and write a song that's not we we don't do that that's not what we do and brian saw this process seeing a whole band it's four of us doing it but we, we had a whole band doing it in a room and thought that he'd never seen that before that's not something he'd witnessed yeah a pro would witnessed bands jamming or whatever, but he'd never witnessed a band jamming in the way that we were doing, which was not to be flash. it wasn't to find flashy things. none of us are technical players really we're simple. we we deal with quite simple things really um i mean british music is its joy is that it's full of people who can't really play Do you know what i mean that's that's one of the enduring qualities about British music and what makes it so. Fucking special is the fact that some of the people up on the stage can't really—they don't know what they're doing, you know. And that's obviously in strict counterpoint to our friends across the water who know all too well what the fuck they're doing, which is <laughs> much of their music is so sterile. Yeah. And why the best American music is, is a bit like British music. You know what I mean? I mean, I listen to Pavement. I listen to a bunch of fuckers who don't really know what they're doing, and I love it. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, whereas when I listen to Green Day, I just go, oh, you chancing fuckers, you need to die. You know, um, but anyway, um, how can that be punk? Do you not know what punk is? No, 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 of course you don't know what punk is, because you weren't there, were you? You were nowhere near it. So you have this thing that is like a corporate idea of what punk is, which is like... Anyway, that's yes. a rant. Well, that's, that's,
1: that's, that's a good rant, actually. Yeah, but what well, it was. Oh, I Sorry,
2: I don't know how I got there, but you know what I'm saying. So, yeah, Brian, well, amazing to work with him, and it was challenging in all sorts of ways. Not everything worked again, but lots of things did work, and it worked well enough that we were, and and, and it, that we com- that relationship was you know continued throughout the nineties. Uh, yeah. and, and and actually, I think one of the best records we made with him was "Pleased to Meet You," which was our last record that we made, uh, studio record that we made uh, before we disbanded, seemingly forever. Of course, that we didn't disband forever because we got back together in two thousand one. But "Pleased to Meet You" is a favourite record of mine. I had a massive hand in it, actually. And uh, have a co-production credit with Brian on that record. But I got to sit at a mixing desk with him for about six weeks and had a masterclass in how to make a record. Again, not all of it works, but a lot of it does. And there's a particular sound and an attitude to that record. And it sounds like a sigh to me. It's like a, wow, thank God we're not going to do this anymore kind of record. you know. And it has a little bit of an end of an era kind of thing to it, uh, which I really like. It's quite depressing and quite dark and uh and it's not it doesn't make that comfortable listening really i don't think in some ways but they're exactly the reasons why i like it
1: and that's the second part of my interview with soul davies from james and um, as i said at the start of the show hopefully you're paying attention they have a new album that's uh, come out this month and um if you listen to that interview they're writing for another album so um check it out it doesn't um it doesn't get better than that anyway look let's play a track and then play another part of the uh, interview this is going to be from Layden, and this is the title track of the album The title track of Laid that came out in about 1993 from James and this is going to be the third part of my interview with guitarist Soul Davies where we talk about or well, I was talking about the creative process and writing new material and um how tricky that is still trying to write that three minute classic as the years decades roll on and this was his response and I think he um chuckled a bit it was that good a question yeah
2: <laughs> yeah uh yeah, I I mean I think also a thing to say about us is that we've never, ever, once I honestly can't think of one moment in thirty years that I've been involved in it where um, we we've sat down deliberately to write something. Never, uh, we've. We've, we, we, we've never looked to. We've never looked back and said, "Oh, now that worked on this last record, we ought to do more like that." Or you, you know, we, 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 if we had been more clinical, perhaps in the way that we approached types of songs that we were recording and re- therefore releasing, we would have been massive, perhaps, because we could have followed up with things that sounded a bit like the thing that had been huge, and we never did that, never, and we, we, we never will, you know. That, that's like we fall into things. We're a, we're a we're a misshapen entity we just fall into things you know uh and we take a lot of chance we're much riskier than people think we are uh, our fans get it because they come to our shows and they go yeah you, you know they don't they, they I have people going i'm really glad you didn't place it down tonight it's so disappointing when you place it down i go i know <laughs> and um
3: yeah.
2: and um And that's not to say that we don't value that song, for example, or we don't value Laid or any of those massive fucking tunes. We do, of course, we value them. They're part of why we're still together and here. Uh, But they are also to be put into a place, you know, and the place is play them occasionally. Uh, Certainly in the case of sit down, when we do play it, it becomes special again. Sometimes we just start playing it, and we don't even know we're going to do it. Just somebody starts playing a bit, and we go, oh, yeah, look, let's do that, and then fuck it, yeah. You know, and that's why we change our sets around quite a lot, uh, certainly from tour to tour, night by night also. But, you know, we look to pull catalogue from the past that we've maybe not touched on, for, if ever. You know, uh, a couple of tours ago, we started playing a song called All Good Boys that was a B-side that we'd never played live. I think we played live once, actually, in truth. And recorded it with Brian. Very beautiful song, a beautiful song, aching song, a folk song almost, really. And uh, we started playing that, and it became one of the highlights of the shows we were doing in big, big spaces and big arenas full of people, and um, uh, people kind of staring at us, a little bit open mouths, like "What the fuck is this?" But getting it, you know, uh, by and large. And yes. um, we, we, our our um, right, I would say, we've earned the right kind of to piss people off a little bit Uh, but we're good enough and we've got great enough catalogue and the new songs are working well enough that we can pull people away from being pissed off and we can send them off grinning again almost like we've done the obvious but by doing the not very obvious if you see what i mean and uh that's really heartening if we didn't do that i think we'd have to stop because we'd become a heritage band and then we'd be playing you know then we'd be going out and doing a tour where we just play laid or whatever you know what i mean and maybe one day we will do that i don't know i wouldn't say nothing never to anything everything or anything you know what i mean but i i I think we're so far away from that at the moment that i would be tempted to think that we probably won't ever have to resort to that kind of stuff i'd be very happy with us if we didn't you know uh, do that
1: because um, you know, when you when you did sort of in '01, and that was the time when the, the band were finishing, did it? Did you have a moment where you managed to sit down and say, "This is it," and and sort of have a clean break, thinking this really was going to be the end?
2: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, we had no, we didn't talk to each other for years. We'd gone, we'd, we'd left James behind. We, well, Mark and I maintained not only our friendship, but started making music together and stuff. But we. Uh, we were listening to some of it the other night going, Fucking hell, we did this fifteen years ago. We should have released it. It was fucking great. Anyway. Um uh, Oh no, no, we didn't like each other. We were wrong. Everything was wrong. We were in um Madeira playing a festival and I got really pissed. Uh I've been to total now for eleven years. So I don't drink and uh, I can look back on myself and think what a tit I was. But um, uh, I got really drunk in the restaurant at the hotel by the swimming pool. Imagine it just sounds so shite, doesn't it? It sounds like an episode of some horrible American TV show that we were in. But we weren't. We were in Madeira and we were playing a a show. No doubt the show was great, but we were so dysfunctional. (laughs) uh, I remember sitting there and I thought, oh, I'll just see what happens if I say this. I said, should we just split it up, lads? Like, we all fucking hate each other. Should we just do that? And Tim goes, yeah. And, uh, and it felt like, oh, right, cool. Well, we'll do these last shows we've got. And we did. That uh, was in the summer. And by the winter, we were walking off stage at Glambier Arena. And that was it. We didn't speak to each other. Excellent. And, um, yeah. Oh, we had no thought at all that we would ever be a band again. And the remarkable remarkable thing is that sorry, that was two thousand and one, so that was six years it took us to get and we and we I guess we spoke to each other for about six months before we met up and thought, Okay, we'll make some music. And Simon Moran, S. J. M said, You'll have to put a fucking tour on and we were like, Well no one will come. And why would they come? Like, we're just we're just gonna write some music and we'll sit No, you put a fucking tour on, I bet it'll sell. And we were like, nah, it won't. And uh, anyway, they put a tour on and we thought it would take weeks to sell it. And it sold in less than an hour. It was 35,000 tickets.
1: Fantastic.
2: And we thought, thought, well, people are going to come, we're going to have to go and play all the fucking hits. But in the meantime, we'd started writing and we had some of the beginnings of some scratchy ideas and we went back into our catalogue and we just said to ourselves, no, we're not doing the hits. If we'd fucking do that now, we're fucked. Yeah, we'll, we'll never work as a band. It'll never work. We'll do a tour and we'll disappear. It'll be back to your, you know, very beautiful description of the demise of a hopeful band. But it would be like that all over again, but starting 25 years in or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Yes. It, it would work. Oh, we've fallen out. Oh, the second album. Oh, shit. We're gone again. <laughs> we were desperate for that not to happen because we'd found out we, the break had done us good. We liked each other again. Oh, yes. right. We, we um, and there was still some anger actually and some angst and that was but it was getting spiky the tunes were getting good you know the recordings weren't brilliant we had to compromise on the recordings and stuff but but the attitude of the band internally was good it was great it was spiky but it was welcoming and it was respectful uh that was okay that allowed us to move forward and um Yeah, and so we stopped playing The Obvious. We never did do The Obvious, but we absolutely made sure that we didn't do The Obvious from then on, from 2007 on. And we've had some remarkable things happen to us, like suddenly Six Music got behind us. And then suddenly the demographic of our audience started to change a little bit, but it was noticeable were younger and they were coming and they didn't know sit down or born of frustration or laid or she's a star or tomorrow or ring the bells or getting away with it they didn't weren't interested in those things they were more interested in to my surprise or nothing but love or whatever the fuck it was that from our or bitch from our records and that's what they were there to hear and then suddenly you're going like whoa hang on a minute we can do this contain some relevance
1: indeed, the importance of being being relevant, that is the third part of my interview with Sol Davies from um, James if you want to contact me, we always love your messages you can via Facebook or Twitter just go to at C86 show and I will be there but I think we should have a track from their um, new album titled Living in Extraordinary Times came out early August this is coming home, part two take it away A single from the new album by James Titled Coming Home Part 2 All very exciting And a very dramatic video If you so wish to watch one Anyway This is going to be the fourth part of my interview With Sol Davies Where we talk about the relationship Amongst the band members themselves And uh, the general dynamic And this was Sol's response
2: we were all doing our own thing We we have We had We're closer now To each other As a band and as people probably, but we also need to maintain our space from each other and we give each other the space naturally enough, or could it be any other way, to do whatever needs to be done in the background of your own life, you know, you get on with it. I mean, I live in the north of Scotland in the middle of nowhere with my two kids and Jim, my bass player, lives up there as well, an hour away from me and we have uh, uh, variously uh, different, to some extent... Uh, harsh. We live in a harsh environment. Quite challenging, but also fuels all sorts of bits of you, whether it's physical or emotional or whatever. You know, um, you can't help but be when you're sitting in the west coast of northwest coast of Scotland, looking up. You can't at night. You can't help but be affected. That's why you're there. Yeah. You're there for a reason. If you go and live in the middle of Sheffield, you live there for a reason. You know what I mean? You you do what suits you. So that suits me. Um, That gives me a certain amount of, you know, impetus to spend the life that I have outside of the band. Um, Tim does his thing. We all do our own thing. We share moments of that stuff with each other. We share it most uh, importantly, probably, but in a hidden way as well at the same time. Um, When we get together and jam, Mm. just because you bring, whenever you do anything creative or artistically, as long as you're not doing it clinically, which we're not, then you bring your own life to that, don't you? You have to, you can't avoid it. So we're all bringing our experiences of our lives as they change and alter, as they run their course to what we're doing. We share some concerns, we share some political concerns, we share some concerns about, you know the way that the world is. That's fine. We occasionally that surfaces in our music, like it has done on this record. And I think, again, I think that's fine. I think we've earned the right to say some things. Uh, why, whether anybody listens isn't actually the point. The point is that you, if you are, if you're doing art, we think we're doing art, um, though it's pop. There comes a point where you earn the right to do what the fuck you want, really. And I think that goes back to Brian's thing. I mean, of saying, you know, no, none of our kids, are, none of us are clinging to boats in the Mediterranean. Are we desperately no. trying, to get, trying to get to a country that doesn't want us? We're just, we're just, we're, we're super privileged. You know, we, we live on, the, we, you know, we're, we're like, you know, financially we're not, but do you know what I mean? Like we're like, we're like premiership footballers. We've got everything. How could you moan about anything, you fucker? How could you possibly moan? Well, but we must moan, mustn't we, as well, at the same time, all of us from our educated, privileged, mayor, dare I say it, white background. You know, we, we, we are the super race, aren't we? We're the people that have been given everything. And we've been given the right to comment as well on stuff that we don't understand sometimes. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yes. Well, we, you know, are, we are English, you know, English people do like moaning. I mean, you always notice that when you've been abroad and you come back and it doesn't matter where you've been and what the weather was like and the landscape, you know, the first time you bump into someone in the shop or, and you say, oh, God, yeah, for England, of course, we, we have a bit of a moan about something, you know, and it's like that's just how, how it kind of is and it's kind of amusing. It's kind of interesting you were saying about creativ- creativity and where you live because I remember Will Self, you know, talking about when he finished a novel would often take himself to the very furthest northern point in Scotland to sort of, you know... Clear the mind and sort of focus mm. and get that last bit done so he could just kind of not be bombarded with the usual kind of overstimulated world that we live in, which is kind of something that we kind of love to hate. But um, at the same time, it's sometimes a bit difficult to completely disengage. But it was interesting because a few years ago, I remember watching one of those BBC Four documentaries and this was on, you know, bands reforming. And it was quite interesting because they had Stuart Copeland from the police and, um, you know, they did this tour. It was huge. Hugely successful. I mean, they just kept sort of, you know, it was like, if you want a few more million pounds, just say yes to a few more gigs. But they said everybody was enjoying themselves apart from him and Sting, you know, they just hated it. And then they said, we need band therapy. And then they were honest with each other. And, you know, like Sting said, every comment you said to me hurt you know but he didn't realize that he would just kind of keep bombarding sting with more and more things just to try and get him and sting kind of held his ground but it's like well everyone hit you and he's like yes you know and then they kind of cleared the air and moved on and you know i don't think they were going to reform again but it kind of cleared up this kind of they said it was the most miserable period of their life even though financially it was you know they don't need to worry about their pension so did you have to have moments where you said can we just sit down and listen to each other's stories
2: yeah we do occasionally we've we've got the magic banana um and the magic banana is uh when we sit down uh, you're only allowed to talk if you are holding the banana and the banana comes from the fact that on the laid the cover of laid we're all standing there wearing dresses holding bananas and um so we have the magic banana, and if we're going to have a meeting, we need to go out to the shops and get a banana, and then we all sit there, and then the banana sits in the table, and then we, whoever needs to go first uh, picks up the banana, and everyone shuts the fuck up until the banana goes back on the on the table again, and then it's free to be collected by someone else. And uh, yeah, and that's kind of that's
1: kind of one of the the things that's kind of kept the band together. You don't even need a therapist; you just need a banana.
2: It's a lot, just, it's a lot man,
1: cheaper isn't
2: it? It's a lot cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh. and 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 genuinely I'm not making that up that's what we do. So yeah.
1: Well, I used to, you know, I, I was in those places where you'd have a talking stick and you could only talk if you picked the stick up. And uh, so a banana sounds, you know, it could have been anything really. But <laughs> yes, it's good to it's good to relate it to your creative past. What would you kind of say to your kind of 18 year old self? Because obviously you've been sort of in this kind of gig for now for decades. And and obviously at moments where you probably thought, oh, God, what am I going to do now? And then it's, you know, you're in a good place now. But, you know, obviously you must have thought. You know, those periods when, you know, you probably all felt like you were gods that didn't, uh, didn't shut up enough and listen to each other. But, you know, you must have got a lot of wisdom from, from this experience.
2: I don't know, really. I, I sense that we know a few more things than we did when we were in our late teens, early 20s. But looking back on ourselves then, I'm not sure is particularly useful, except that I have... When I have done that recently, I've noticed, as I started off talking to you about, I I see an attitude which joins me, older self, to that self when I first joined James when I was 23 or whatever. I'm a 53-year-old man. Tim is 58. I just went to see Roger Waters play in Liverpool. It was one of the greatest shows I've ever seen in my life. I'm a massive Floyd fan. Not the latest Floyd stuff, but the, the real Floyd period. Um, I'm a massive fan of and my 11-year-old daughter Mia uh, made me buy the tickets I wasn't particularly uh, into going I wouldn't even know when I bought the tickets last year whether we could even go because I was thinking I'd probably be playing a show on the same day myself but anyway the way it fell was I could go to Liverpool Echo and see him play and I haven't seen anything more visceral or vitriolic or angry and focused uh, for years in fact I don't know what other show I would even related to other than perhaps seeing the wall when i was 15 Uh, i was caught i was lucky enough to go and see that when i was 15 um the first time round. this was a singular he's 75 in september the fucker is 75 and he was standing up there and when he came out on stage with a big rubber pig's head on, holding up a placard saying pigs rule the world and then putting it down and picking up another one going and it's written on it, Fuck the pigs with a huge picture of Trump behind him, like thirty by sixty feet across or whatever it was, across the back of the stage. And twelve, thirteen thousand people stood up and just started applauding. I thought, Fuck, wow. <laughs> Ouch. My- and 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 the first song they played was Breathe and my daughter Mia was crying she turned to me and she just had tears streaming down her face and I thought, fuck that's what this can do to you amazing, yeah. so you just grab it you just have to grab it while it's
1: happening and that's my fourth part of the interview with Soul Davies from James I think we need a little bit more music this is Waltzing Along And that's the track titled Waltzing Along from the album Whiplash that came out in 1997. I was just having a bit of a Proustian flashback there to thoughts of uh, the Britpop period that was probably coming slowly to an sticky and messy end as most scenes happen. And also that was the year that uh, New Labour got into power my God, that's 21 years ago. That does make me feel a bit old, actually, and uh, slightly nostalgic and sad. But never mind. Look, this is going to be the f- fifth and final part of the interview with Soul Davies, where we talk about the sound of their 1990s albums, which came crashing on the scene with great production and, um, yes, big hits as well. Soul, take it away. Sh-
2: we shifted everything then. So suddenly our sound changed. We didn't do it deliberately. It just happened. we were like, whoa, suddenly we've become big, sounding big. We've become a big band, played fucking Alton Towers and sold it out. You know, that was our Spike Island. And we've made a big sounding record. It's like, hmm. So, actually, what you're saying makes me think I need to go back and listen to that record, actually, because I don't think of it favourably.
1: Oh, good. (laughs)
2: but I but I would like to go back and hear it again I will do actually and uh, yeah mm. um,
1: yeah
2: that's that's quite interesting because I I I feel like it should be deficient in some way because of that size you know and uh next to the fragility of of the relative fragility of laid uh which I really appreciate because you can hear every single little thing that's happening you know uh but maybe that's just a musician's Thing, you know what I mean, like, like a muso not muso, ponytail muso, fretless bass muso, I mean just like a musician's thing i getting that
1: yes. but,
2: yeah.
1: Well it had a swagger I and a confidence didn't it, I think that's, that's the thing that, that sort of strikes me with that kind of sort of um... We
2: made that record with youth and he came into the studio and he goes Olympic and I remember him saying lads and opening the door to the studio and going, this is where they date Led Zeppelin Three, lads. We're going to make fucking history. And we had candles everywhere and flowers and a big Buddha in the middle of the room. And we were like, who the fuck is this, Lou? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a beautiful moment. And uh, we thought, yeah, we are in the presence of a true blagger, but we're going to make a record with him. And... That's what it was. That's what it, and it was just like, yeah. And uh, Mark Stent was the engineer. Know, one of his, and he just got an incredible sound. You know, like, and it's appealing. It was appealing. You know, to hear hit a snare drum and hear it go, rather than, you know what I mean? That'd yes. As far away from stutter as you could get sonically, probably. You know what I mean?
1: Yes, well well, I suppose those are the days where we would listen to the House Martins and sort of that scratchy indie pop like you know there wasn't quite there but you know bands like Bogshed and Big Flame and Stump you know which you know us who were into the John Peel show Mm -hmm. and and wanted to hear anything from the Bundu boys to sort of Roxay Chante that that early public enemy stuff and you know anything that was slightly difficult from you know and even Napalm Death god I went to even see them after John Peel played them and it was it was like you just kind of wanted to you just thought god this is so unusual I'm, I'm just at that stage in life that I I need to Consumer, because you know you had Tina Turner and Dire Straits on one side, and yeah. Duran Duran, and then you had you know like you you know the first time you heard Bogshed or stump or big flame you're thinking well that's that is quite an unusual thing and there's this person who's playing it on the radio and and so yeah so one liked it but then you do need to move on and you know like from stutter to to those kind of epic sounds that you had like with youth you know you you kind of need to do it and i suppose the band that really did it was was you too and with you know yeah they they kind of could see the narrative i suppose that's the thing they they could see the big picture none of them probably wanted to go back and get a day job you know they thought actually let's not completely blow it but, you know, they, they did sort of, I, I suppose I still admire them, even though I'm not a big fan of them. I just think, you know, when you get to a certain age, you think, God, you didn't completely cock it up, did you? You know.
2: No, I don't think they did. And I know they're much maligned, you know, but, and for good reason to some extent, but, yeah, they saw a different narrative. And, yeah, I suppose at the peak of their powers, his voice was the dominant voice, wasn't it? Yes, and well, was true. People. I mean, if you get from a fucking housing estate to being the dominant cultural voice, that's a trick, isn't it? That's like Neymar coming from the favelas and, you know. Yes. At the World Cup, you know what I mean? Or falling <laughs> over in the World Cup. Rolling, um, rolling around
1: a lot. I suppose, Yeah, know. that is true. But it was interesting what you said when you had that, when you reformed, because I spoke to a few people who have had experiences of reform, and there was a guy called Phil Kilke, or King who was in Lush And then became the guitarist with Jesus and the Mary Chain When they were reformed And it was interesting because Lush Everything with that band has gone so badly wrong That they're only talking through lawyers now Because they're sort of still suing each other And when Jesus and the Mary Chain came back They had a bit of a tour Then he said the problem is that when they do another tour you know, the promoter or the management going, yeah, let's go bigger. And it's like, actually, no one's really that interested in this anymore. We need to go lower, you know. And so it's kind of interesting that James were able to sort of make that move to say, actually, we're not going to go to the art centres, we can go to the the Cambridge Corn Exchange, or even, you know, the Wembley Arena or whatever it is now. So it's kind of, kind of, because I think when Lush started, the promoter was going, brilliant, we'll book this, this and this. And and he, with the experience, was going, no, no, actually, I don't think that many people are interested in us. And there was a band called Ride, who also had a that's a similar true. experience of like going, I think we might have problems filling out fifty people at the moment, so because all these indie bands that I've been interviewing a lot of them have slowly come back, but they 're now playing in small little pubs, you know from Pete Astor to um, Davey mm. Woodward from the brilliant corners i mean they 're all fantastic bands, but you know they 're just they are literally playing small pub gigs, and I think they 're happy with it because they 've got a day job, but it 's just interesting that that you were able to sort of get back and literally sort of get on the Harley-Davidson and keep it rocking rather than just going, actually, no one's that interested. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I, I, and, and again, I, I don't quite know. I guess first time around, we were making connections to people in our shows especially. We would have assumed by 2007 when we reformed that, they, that that had melted away, but it hadn't. And it was really interesting as well. YouTube had kicked off. And Getting Away With It, our song, Getting Away With It, became a big song in places like Spain and Peru and Chile whilst we were away, not being a band. When we came back again, people wanted to hear us play even that song. It's a great song. It's a beautiful song. And um, uh, so odd things happened, just quirks of fate, really. But some of it I must be thinking about it now must be because we created a bond with people live and they recognized that if we still had it whatever that it is then we were a good bet for a 50 quid and a chinese meal and a babysitter and a bit of pub. you know what i mean yes absolutely um, and, and, and and not in a horrid dire straits reformed kind of money for nothing kind of way but in a way that oh quite like the new album as well Fucking, i heard that on six it was really cool kind of thing we've just somehow managed
1: it and that's the last part of my interview with Sol Davies from James who I do believe have um, well I know they've got a new album out that's titled Living in Extraordinary Times they've got a tour coming out in the autumn playing with the charlatans and obviously from that interview they're recording or at least writing new material for another album probably early next year so what not to like anyway thank you ever so much for listening this has been David Eastor and I'll leave you with Ring the Bells I'm not afraid to